The Overstory by Richard Powers Niklas Hall Now is the time of chestnuts. People are hurling stones at the giant trunks. The nuts fall all around them in a divine hail. It happens in countless places this Sunday, from Georgia to Maine. Up in Concord, Turo takes part. He feels he is casting rocks at a sentient being, with a duller sense than his own, yet still a blood relation. Old trees are our parents, and our parents' parents, perchance. If you would learn the secrets of nature, you must practice more humanity. In Brooklyn, on Prospect Hill, the new arrival, Jorgen Hall, laughs at the hard rain his throws bring down. Each time his stone hits, food shakes down by the shovelful. Men dash about like thieves, stuffing caps, sacks and trouser cuffs with nuts freed from their enclosing burrs. Here it is, the fabled free banquet of America. Yet one more windfall in a country that takes even its scraps right from God's table. The Norwegian and his friends from the Brooklyn Navy Yard eat their bounty roasted over great bonfires in a clearing in the woods. The charred nuts are comforting beyond words, sweet and savoury, rich as honeyed potato, earthy and mysterious all at once. The bird husks prickle, but their no is more of a tease than any real barrier. The nuts want to slip free of their spiny protection. Each one volunteers to be eaten so others might be spread far afield. That night, drunk on roasted chestnuts, Paul proposes to V. Powers, an Irish girl from the pine-framed row houses two blocks from his tenements, on the edge of Finn Town. No one within 3,000 miles has the right to object. They marry before Christmas. By February, they are Americans. In the spring, the chestnuts bloom again, long, shaggy catkins waving in the wind, like whitecaps on the glaucous Hudson. Citizenship comes with a hunger for the uncut world. The couple assemble their movable goods and make the overland trip through the great tracts of eastern white pine into the dark beech forests of Ohio, across the Midwestern oak breaks and out to the settlement near Fort Des Moines in the new state of Iowa, where the authorities give away land plotted yesterday to anyone who will farm it. The nearest neighbors are two miles away. They plough and plant four dozen acres that first year, corn, potatoes and beans. The work is brutal, but theirs, better than building ships for any country's navy. Then comes a prairie winter. The cold tests their will to live. 
Knights in the gap-riddled cabin zero their blood. They must crack the ice in the water basin every morning just to splash their faces. But they are young, free and driven, the sole backers of their own existence. Winter doesn't kill them, not yet. The blackest despair at the heart of them gets pressed to diamond. When it's time to plant again, V is pregnant. Paul puts his ear to her belly. She laughs at his awe-slapped face. What is it saying? He answers in his blunt, thumping English. Feed me. That may, Paul discovers six chestnuts stuffed in the pocket of the smock he wore on the day he proposed to his wife. He presses them into the earth of western Iowa on the treeless prairie around the cabin. The farm is hundreds of miles from the chestnut's native range, a thousand from the chestnut feast of Prospect Hill. Each month, these green forests of the east grow harder for Hall to remember. But this is America, where men and trees take the most surprising outings. Paul plants, waters, and sings. One day my children will shake the trunks and eat for free. Their firstborn dies in infancy, killed by a thing that doesn't yet have a name. There are no microbes yet. God is the lone taker of children snatching even placeholder souls from one world to the other, according to obscure timetables. One of the six chestnuts fails to sprout, but Jurgen Hall keeps the surviving seedlings alive. Life is a battle between the maker and his creation. Hall grows expert at the fight. Keeping his trees going is trivial compared to the other wars he must wage each day. At the end of the first season, his fields are full and the best of his seedlings stand over two feet tall. In four more years, the Holts have three children and the hint of a chestnut grove. The sprigs come up spindly, their brown stems lined with lenticels. The lush, scalloped, saw-toothed, spiny leaves dwarf the twigs they bud from. Aside from these starts and a few scattered burr oaks in the bottomlands, the homestead is an island in a grassy sea. Even the skinny starts already have their uses. Tea from infant trees for heart trouble, leaves from young sprouts to cure sores, cold bark brew to stop bleeding after birth, warmed golds to par back an infant's navel, leaves boiled with brown sugar for coughs, poultices for burns, leaves to st- Stuff a talking mattress, an extract for despair when anguish is too much. The years unfold, both fat and lean. 
Though their average tends towards a runty, Jurgen detects an upward trend. Every year that he plows, he breaks more land. And the future whole labor pool keeps growing. V sees to that. The trees thicken like enchanted things. Chestnut is quick. By the time an ash has made a baseball bat, a chestnut has made a dresser. Bend over to look at a sapling and it'll put your eye out. Fishes in their bark swirl like barber poles as the trunks twist upward. In the wind the branches flicker between dark and paler green. The globes of leaves sweep out, seeking ever more sun. They wave in the humid August, the way Paul's wife will still sometimes shake free her once amber hair. By the time war comes again to the infant country, the five trunks have surpassed the one who planted them. The pitiless winter of 62 tries to take another baby. It settles for one of the trees. The oldest child, John, destroys another the summer after. It never occurs to the boy that stripping half the tree's leaves to use as play money might kill it. Paul yanks his son's hair. How do you like it, hmm? He cracks the boy with his open palm. V must throw her body in between them to stop the beating. The draft arrives in 63. The young and single men go first. Jurgen Hall at 33 with a wife, small children and a few hundred acres gets deferred. He never does help preserve America. He has a smaller country to save. Back in Brooklyn, a poet nurse to the Union dying writes, A leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. Jurgen never reads these words. Words strikes him as a ruse. His maize and beans and squash, all growing things alone, disclose the wordless mind of God. One more spring and the three remaining trees burst out in cream-coloured flowers. The blooms smell acrid, gamey, sour, like old shoes or rank undergarments. Then comes a thimble full of sweet nuts. Even that small harvest reminds a man and his exhausted wife of the falling manna that brought them together one night in the woods east of Brooklyn. There will be bushels, Jurgen says. His mind is already making bread, coffee, soups, cakes, gravies, all the delicacies that the natives knew this tree could give. We can sell the extra in town. Christmas presents for the neighbours, V decides. But it's the neighbours who must keep the holes alive in that year's brutal drought. One more chestnut dies of thirst in a season when not even the future can be spared a drop of water. Years pass. The brown trunks start to grey. Lightning in a parched fall 
With so few prairie targets tall enough to bother with, hits one of the remaining chestnut pears. Wood that might have been good for everything from cradles to coffins goes up in flames. Not enough survives to make so much as a three-legged stool. The sole remaining chestnut goes on flowering, but its blooms have no more blooms to answer them. No mates exist for countless miles around, and a chestnut, though both male and female, will not serve itself. Yet still this tree has a secret tucked into the thin living cylinder beneath its bark. Its cells obey an ancient formula. Keep still. Wait. Something in the lone survivor knows that even the ironclad law of now can be outlasted. There's work to do. Star work but earth-bound all the same. Or, as the nurse to the Union dead writes, stand cool and composed before a million universes. As cool and composed as wood. The farm survives the chaos of God's will. Two years after Appomattox, between tilling, ploughing, planting, roguing, Weeding and harvesting, Jurgen finishes the new house. Crops come in and are carried off. Paul's sons step into the traces along their ox-like father. Daughters disperse in marriage to nearby farms. Villages sprout up. The dirt track past the farms turns into a real road. The youngest son works in the Pork County Assessor's Office. The middle boy becomes a banker in Ames. The eldest son, John, stays on the farm with his family and works it as his parents decline. John Hall throws in with speed, progress and machines. He buys a steam tractor that both ploughs and threshes, reaps and binds, It bellows as it works, like something set free from hell. For the last remaining chestnut, all this happens in a couple of new fissures, an inch of added rings. The tree bulks out. Its bark spirals upwards like Trajan's column. Its scalloped leaves carry on turning sunlight into tissue. It more than abides, it flourishes a globe of green health and vigor. And in the second June of the new country, here is Jurgen Hall, in bed in an oak-trimmed upstairs room of the house he built, a bedroom he can no longer leave, looking out the dormer window onto a school of leaves, swimming and shining in the sky. His son's steam tractor hammers down in the northy forty, but Jurgen Hall mistakes the sounds for weather. The branches dapple him, something about those green and toothy leaves, a dream he once had, a vision of increase and flourishing, causes a feast to fall all around his head again. He wonders, what makes the bark twist and swirl so in a tree so straight and wide? Could it be the spinning of the earth? Is it trying to get the attention of men?
700 years before, a chestnut in Sicily, 200 feet around, sheltered a Spanish queen and her hundred mounted knights from a raging storm. That tree will outlive by a hundred years and more the man who has never heard of it. Do you remember? Jurgen asked the woman who holds his hand. Prospect Hill, how we ate that night? He nods towards the leafy limbs, the land beyond. I gave you that, and you gave me all of this, this country, my life, my freedom. But the woman who holds his hand is not his wife. V has died five years ago of infected lungs. Sleep now, his granddaughter tells him, and lays his hand back on his spent chest. We'll all be just downstairs. John Hall buries his father beneath the chestnut the man planted. A three-foot cast-iron fence now surrounds the scattering of graves. The tree above casts its shade with equal generosity on the living and the dead. The trunk has grown too thick for John to embrace. The lowest skirt of surviving branches lifts out of reach. The whole chestnut becomes a landmark, what farmers call a sentinel tree. Families navigate by it on Sunday outings. Locals use it to direct travellers, the lone lighthouse in a grain-filled sea. The farm prospers. There is seed money now to breed and propagate. With his father gone and his brothers off on their own, John Hall is free to chase after the latest machines. His equipment sheds filled with reapers and winnowers and twine binders. He travels out to Charles City to see the first two-cylinders gas-powered tractors. When phone lines come through, he subscribes, although it costs a fortune and no one in the family can think what the thing might be good for. The immigrant's son yields to the disease of improvement years before there's an effective cure for it. He buys himself a Kodak number no. 2 brownie. You push the button, we do the rest. He must send the film to Des Moines for developing and printing, a process that soon costs many times more than the $2 camera. He photographs his wife in calico and a crumpled smile poised over the new mechanical cloth mangle. He photographs his children running the combine and riding sway-backed draft horses along the field's headers. He photographs his family in their Easter finest, bound with bonnets and garroted by bow ties. When nothing else of his little postage stamp of Iowa is left to photograph, John turns his camera on the whole chestnut, his exact coeval. A few years before, he bought his youngest girl a zoopraxiscope for her birthday though he alone kept playing with it after she grew bored. Now these squadrons of flapping geese and parades of bucking broncos that come alive when the glass drum spins 
animate his brain. A grand plan occurs to him as if he invented it. He decides for whatever years are left to him to capture the tree and see what the thing looks like sped up to the rate of human desire. He builds a tripod in the equipment shop. Then he sets a broken grinding stone on a rise near the house. And on the first day of spring 1903, John Hall positions a number two brownie and takes a full-length portrait of the sentinel chestnut leafing out. One month later to the day, from the same spot and the same hour, he takes another. The 21st of every month finds him up on, the, on his rise. It becomes a ritual devotion, even in rain and snow and killing heat. His own private liturgy of the church of the spreading vegetative God. His wife teases him without mercy, as do his children. He's waiting for it to do something interesting. When he assembled the first year's twelve black and white prints and riffles them with his thumb, they show precious little for his enterprise. In one instant, the tree makes leaves from nothing. In the next, it offers up everything to the thickening light. Otherwise, the branches merely endure. But farmers are patient men, tried by brutal seasons. And if they weren't plagued by dreams of generation, few would keep ploughing spring after spring. John Hall is out on his rise again on March 21st, 1904, as if he, too, might have another hundred years or two to document what time hides forever in plain sight. Twelve hundred miles east, in the city where John Hall's mother sewed dresses and his father built ships, disaster hits before anyone knows it. The killer slips into the country from Asia in the wood of Chinese chestnuts destined for fancy gardens. A tree in the Bronx Zoological Park turns October colors in July. Leaves curl and scorch to the hue of cinnamon. Rings of orange spots spread across a swollen bark. At the slightest press, the wood caves in. Within a year, orange spots fleck chestnuts throughout the Bronx, the fruiting bodies of a parasite that has already killed its host. Every infection releases a horde of spores on the rain and wind. City gardeners mobilize a counterattack. They lop off infected branches and burn them. They spray trees with a lime and copper sulfate from horse-drawn wagons. All they do is spread the spores on the axes on the axis they use to cut the victims down. A researcher at the New York Botanical Garden identifies the killer as a fungus new to man. He publishes the results and leaves town to beat the summer heat. When he returns a few weeks later, not a chestnut in the city is worth saving. Death races across Connecticut and Massachusetts, jumping dozens of miles a year. Trees succumb by the hundreds of thousands. A country watches dumbstruck as New England's priceless chestnuts melt away. 
the tree of the tanning industry, of railroad ties, train cars, telegraph poles, fuel, fences, houses, barns, fine desks, tables, pianos, crates, paper pulp, and endless free shade and food, the most harvested tree in the country is vanishing. Pennsylvania tries to cut a buffer hundreds of miles wide across the state. In Virginia, on the northern edge of the country's richest chestnut forests, people call for a religious revival to purge the sin behind the plague. America's perfect tree, backbone of entire rural economies, the limber, durable redwood of the east with three dozen industrial uses, Every fourth tree of a forest stretching 200 million acres from Maine down to the Gulf is doomed. News of the blight doesn't reach western Iowa. John Hall returns to his rise on the 21st of each month in all weather. The whole chestnut keeps lifting the high water mark of its leaves. It's after something, the farmer thinks, his lone venture into philosophy. It has a plan. On the night before his 56th birthday, John wakes up at 2 a.m. and feels around on the bed as if looking for something. His wife asks what's wrong. Through clenched teeth, he answers, it'll pass. Eight minutes later, he's dead. The farm descends upon his first two sons. The elder, Carl, wants to write off the sunk costs of the photo ritual. Frank, the younger, needs to redeem his father's decade of obscure research by carrying it forward as stubbornly as the tree spreads its crown. More than a hundred frames along, the oldest, shortest, slowest, most ambitious silent movie ever shot in Iowa begins to reveal the tree's goal. A flip through the shots shows the subject stretching and patting about for something in the sky, a mate perhaps, more light, chestnut vindication. When America at last joins the world conflagration, Frank Hall is sent to France with the second cavalry regiment. He makes his nine-year-old son, Frank Jr., promised to keep taking pictures until his return. It's a year for long promises. What the boy lacks in imagination, he makes up for in obedience. Pure, dumb fate leads Frank Sr. out of the cauldron of saint Mihil, only to liquefy him with a mortar shell in the Argonne near Montfaucon. There isn't enough left to put in a pine box and bury. The family makes a time capsule of his caps, pipes and watches and sinks it in the family plot under the tree that he photographed every month for a too short while. If God had a brownie, he might shoot another animated short subject, blight hovering a moment before plunging down the Appalachians into the heart of the chestnut country. The chestnuts up north were majestic, but the southern trees are gods. They form near pure stands for miles on end. 
In the Carolinas, bowls older than America grow 10 feet wide and 120 feet tall. Whole forests of them flower in rolling clouds of white. Scores of mountain communities are built from the beautiful straight-grained wood. A single tree might yield as many as 14,000 planks. The stocks of food that fall shin-deep feed entire counties, counties every year a must year. Now the gods are dying, all of them. The full force of human ingenuity can't stop the disaster breaking over the continent. The blight runs along ridge lines, killing off peak after peak. A person perched on an overlook above the southern mountains can watch the trunks change to grey-white skeletons in a rippling wave. Loggers race through a dozen states to cut down whatever the fungus hasn't reached. The nascent forest service encourages them. Use the the wood, at least, before it's ruined. And in that salvage mission, men kill any tree that might contain the secret of resistance. A five-year-old in Tennessee who sees the first orange spots appear in her magic woods will have nothing left to show her own children except pictures. They'll never see the ripe, full habit of the tree, never know the sight and sound and smell of their mother's childhood. Millions of dead stumps sprout suckers that struggle on year after year before dying of an infection that, preserved in these stubborn shoots, will never disappear. By 1940, the fungus takes everything, all the way out to the farthest stands in southern Illinois. Four billion trees in the native range vanish into myth. Aside from a few secret pockets of resistance, the only chestnuts left are those that pioneers took far away to states beyond the reach of the drifting spores. Frank Hall, Jr. keeps his promise to his father long after his father fades into blurry, black-and-white, overexposed memories. Each month, the boy lays another photo in the balsam box. Soon he's an adolescent, then a young man. He goes through the motions the way he extended Hall family keeps celebrating St. Olaf's Day without remembering what it is. Frank Jr. suffers nothing from imagination. He can't even hear himself think. It's very possible that I hate this tree. It's very possible that I love it more than I loved my father. The thoughts can mean nothing to a man with no real independent desire, born under the thing he is chained to and fated to die under it too. He thinks, this thing has no business here. It's no good to anyone unless we chop it down. Then there are months when, through the viewfinder, the spreading crown seems to his surprised eye like the template for meaning itself. In summer, water rises through the xylem and disperses out of the million tiny mouths on the underside of leaves, a hundred gallons a day evaporating from the tree's airy crown into the humid Iowa air. In fall, the yellowing leaves fill Frank Jr. with nostalgia. In winter, bare branches click and hum above the drifts, their blunt resting buds almost sinister with waiting. 
But for a moment each spring the pale green catkins and cream-coloured flowers put swords into Frank Jr.'s head, swords he doesn't know how to have. The third hall photographer keeps on taking pictures just as he keeps going to church, long after deciding that the entire faithful world has been duped by fairy tales. His pointless photographic ritual gives Frank Jr.'s life a blind purpose that even farming cannot give. It's a monthly exercise in noticing a thing worth no notice at all, a creature as steadfast and reticent as life. The stack of photos hits the 500 mark during World War II. Frank Jr. stops one afternoon to flip through the pictures. He himself feels like the same boy who made an ill-advised promise to his father at the age of nine. But the time-lapse tree has changed beyond all recognition. When all the mature trees in the chestnut's native range are gone, the whole tree becomes a curiosity. A dendrologist in Iowa City comes out to confirm the rumor. A chestnut that escaped the Holocaust. A journalist from the Register does a feature on one of the last of America's perfect trees. More than 1,200 places east of the Mississippi have the word chestnut in them. But you have to come to a rural county in western Iowa to lay eyes on one. Ordinary people driving between New York and San Francisco on the new interstate that cuts a channel alongside the whole farm see only a fountain of shade in the lone and level expanse of corn and soy. In the bitter cold of February 1965, the number two brownie cracks. Frank Jr. replaced it with an Instamatic. The stack grows thicker than any book he has ever tried to read, but each, each photo in the sheaf shows only that lone tree, shrugging off the staggering emptiness that the man knows so well. The farm is to Frank Jr.'s back each time he opens the lens. The photos hide everything, the twenties that do not roar for the holes. The depression that cost them 200 acres and sends half the family to Chicago. The radio shows that ruined two of Frank Jr.'s sons for farming. The whole death in the South Pacific and the two whole guilty survivals. The deers and caterpillars parading through the tractor shed. The barn that burns to the ground one night to the screams of helpless animals. The dozens of joyous weddings, christenings and graduations, the half-dozen adulteries, the two divorces sad enough to silence songbirds, one son's unsuccessful campaign for the state legislature, the lawsuit between cousins, the three surprise pregnancies, the protracted whole guerrilla war against the local pastor in half the Lutheran parish, the handiwork of heroin and Agent Orange that comes home with nephews from Nam. The hushed-up incest, the lingering alcoholism, a daughter's elopement with the high school English teacher, the cancers, breast, colon, lung, the heart disease, the deck loving of a worker's fist in a grain auger, the car death of a cousin's child on prom night, 
the countless tons of chemicals with names like Rage, Roundup and Firestorm, the patented seeds engineered to produce sterile plants, the 50th wedding anniversary in Hawaii and its disastrous aftermath, the dispersal of retirees to Arizona and Texas, the generations of grudge, courage, forbearance and surprise generosity Everything a human being might call the story happens outside his photo's frame. Inside the frame, through hundreds of revolving seasons, there is only that solo tree, its fissured bark spiraling upward into early middle age, growing at the speed of wood. Extinction sneaks up on the whole farm on all the family farms in western Iowa. The tractors grow too monstrous, the railroad cars full of nitrogen fertilizer too expensive, the competition too large and efficient, the margins too marginal and the soil too worn by repeated row cropping to make a profit. Each year another neighbor is swallowed up into the massive, managed, relentlessly productive monocrop factories. Like humans everywhere in the face of catastrophe, Frank Hall Jr. goes blinking into his fate. He takes on debt. He sells off acreage and rights. He signs deals with the seed companies he shouldn't. Next year, he's sure, next year something will come along and save them, as it always has. All told, Frank Jr. adds 755 photos of the solitary giant to the 160 that his father and grandfather shot. On the 21st day of the last April of his life, with Frank Jr. confined to bed, his son Eric travels out to the farm from his home 40 minutes away and sets up on the rise to snap yet one more black and white now filled to the frame with exuberant branches. Eric shows the print to the old man. It's easier than trying to tell his father he loves him. Frank Jr. grimaces at a taste like bitter almonds. Listen, I made a promise and I kept it. You don't owe nobody. Leave that dumb thing be. He might as well command the giant chestnut itself to stop spreading. Three quarters of a century dances by in a five-second flip. Nicholas Hall thumbs through the stack of a thousand photos, watching for those decades' secret meaning. At 25, he's back for a moment on the farm where he has spent every Christmas of his life. He's lucky to be there, given the cancellations. Snowstorms sweep in from the west, grounding plains all over the country. He and his folks have driven out to be with his grandmother. Tomorrow, more family will arrive from all over the state. With a flip through the photos, the farm memories come back to him. The holidays of his childhood, the entire clan gathering for turkey or carols, midsummer flags and fireworks. It's all encoded somehow in that animated tree, the gatherings in each season, joining his cousins for days of exploration and corn-bound boredom. Flipping backwards through the photos, 
Nicholas feels the years peel off like steamed wallpaper. Always the animals, first the dogs, especially the three-legged one, half wild with affection every time Nick's family pulled into the long gravel drive. Then the horses, hot breath and the stiff shock of cow's bristles, snakes threading the harvested stalks, the thumbled on rabbit's nest down by the mailbox. One July, half-feral cats emerging from under the front porch, smelling of mystery and curdled milk, the small gifts of dead mice on the farm's back doorstep. The five-second film triggers primal scenes, prowling the machine shed with its engines and arcane tools, sitting in the whole crowded kitchen, breathing in the mouldy, cracked linoleum, while squirrels summed in the hidden nests between the wall studs, digging for hours with two younger cousins, the antique pear-handled shovels cutting a trench down into what Nick promised would soon be magma. He sits upstairs on the roll-top desk in his dead grandfather's study, sampling a project that outlasted four generations of its makers. Of all the cargo packed into the whole farmhouse, the hundred cookie jars and glass snow globes, the attic box containing his father's old report cards, the foot-pumped bellows organ rescued from the church where his great-grandfather was baptized, his father's and uncle's archaic toys, polished pine skittle bowling pins, and an incredible city run by magnets underneath the streets. His stack of photos has always been the one farm treasure he could never get enough of. Each picture on its own shows nothing, but the tree he climbed so often he could do it blind. But flipped through, a Corinthian column of wood swells under his thumb, rousing itself and shaking free. Three quarters of a century runs by in the time it takes to say grace. Once, as a nine-year-old, at the farm for Easter dinner, Nick riffled through the stack so many times that his grandfather cuffed him and hid the pictures away on the highest shelf on the mothboard closet. Nick was up on a chair and into the stack again as soon as the adults were safely downstairs. It's his birthright, the whole emblem. No other family in the county had a tree like the whole tree, and no other family in Iowa could match the multi-generation photo project for pure weirdness. And yet the adults seemed sworn never to say where the project was going. Neither his grandparents nor his father could explain to him the point of the thick flip book. His grandfather said, I promised my father and he promised his but another time from the same men. Makes you think different about things, don't it? It did. The farm was where Nick first started sketching. The penciled dream of boys, rockets, outlandish cars, massed armies, imaginary cities, more baroque with detail each year. Then wilder textures directly observed the forest of hairs on a caterpillar's back and the stormy weather maps in the grain of floorboards. It was at the farm, drunk on the flip book, 
that he first started to sketch branches. He lay on his back on the 4th of July, looking up into the spreading tree while everyone else pitched horseshoes. There was a geometry to his constant splitting, a balance to the various sicknesses and lengths that lay beyond his powers as an artist to reveal. Sketching, he wondered what his brain would have to be like to distinguish each of the hundreds of lancet leaves on a given branch and recognize them as easily as he did the faces of his cousins. One more flip through the magic movie and faster than it takes for the black and white broccoli to turn again into a sky-probing giant, the nine-year-old cuffed by his grandfather turns into a teen, falls in love with God, prays to God nightly, but rarely successfully to keep from masturbating to visions of Sherry Harper, grows away from God and towards the guitar, gets busted for half a joint of pot, is sentenced to six months in a juvie, scared, straight facility near Cedar Rapids, and there, sketching for hours at a shot everything he can see through his steel-webbed dorm room windows, realizes that he needs to spend his life making strange things. He was sure the idea would be a hard sell. Holds were farmers, feed store owners and farm equipment salesmen like his father, violently practical people, grounded in the logic of land and driven to work long, relentless days, year after year, without ever asking why. Nick prepared himself for a showdown, something out of the D.H. Lawrence novels that helped him survive high school. He practiced for weeks, choking on the absurdity of the request. Dad, I would very much like to plunge off the edge of common sense existence at your expense and become certifiably unemployable. He chose an early spring night. His father lay on a divan on the screened-in porch, as he did most nights, reading a biography of Douglas MacArthur. Nicholas sat in the recliner next to him. Sweet breezes blew in through the screen and uncombed his hair. Dad, I need to go to art school. His father looked out over the top of his book like he was gazing out on the ruins of his lineage. I figured it would be something like that. And Nick was gone, reeled out on a leash long enough to reach the Chicago Loop with the freedom to test all the flaws inherent in his own desire. At school in Chicago, he learned many things. One, human history was the story of increasingly disoriented hunger. Two, art was nothing he thought it was. Three, people would make just about anything you can think to make. Intricate, scrimshot portraits on the tips of pencil leads. Polyurethane-coated dog shit, earthworks that could pass for small nations. Four, makes you think differently about things, don't it? His cohort laughed at his little pencil sketches and hyper-real trom-lol painting. But he kept making them seasons after season, and by the third year, 
he became notorious, even cattily admired. Winter night of senior year, in his rental broom closet in Rogers Park, he had a dream. A woman student he loved asked him, What is it that you really want to make? He bared his hands to the sky, shrugging. Tiny wells of blood pooled in the center of his palms. Up from those pools grew two branching spines. He thrashed in a panic back up to consciousness. Half an hour passed before his heart slowed enough for him to realize where those spines came from. The time-lapse pictures of the chestnut his gypsy Norwegian great-great-great-grandfather planted 120 years before. Wild self-enrolled in that correspondence school of primitive art, the plains of western Iowa. Nick sits at the roll top, flipping once more through the book. Last year he won the Stern Prize for Sculpture from the School of the Art Institute. This year he's a stock boy for a famous Chicago department store that has been dying a slow death for a quarter of a century. Granted, he has earned a degree that licenses him to make pe peculiar artifacts capable of embarrassing his friends and angering strangers. There is a used in Oak Park crammed with papier-mâché costumes for street masks and surreal sets for a show that ran in a little theatre near Andersonville and closed three nights later. But at 25, the scion of a long line of farmers wants to believe that his best work might still be ahead of him. It's the day before Christmas Eve. Holds will descend on Mars tomorrow, but his grandmother is already in hog heaven. She lives for these days when the old drafty house fills up with descendants. There's no farm anymore, just the house on its island rise. All the whole land is long-term leased to outfits run from offices hundreds of miles away. The Iowa earth has been brought to its rationalized end. But for a while, for this holiday, the place will be all miracle births and saviors and mangas, as it was at whole Christmases for a hundred and twenty years running. Nick heads downstairs. It's mid-morning and his grandmother, father and mother huddle around the kitchen table where the pecan rolls flow and the dominoes are already getting worn down to little chiclets. Outside, the cold dips well below bitter to counter the polar north winds pouring through the cedar-sided walls. Eric Hall has cranked up the old propane space heater. There's a fire blazing in the fireplace, food enough to feed the 5,000 and a new TV as big as Wyoming, Wyoming tuned to a football game no one cares about. Nicholas says, who is up for Omaha? There's an American landscapes exhibit at the Jocelyn Museum only an hour away. When he pitched the idea the night before, the old folks seemed interested. Now they look away. His mother smiles, embarrassed for him. I'm feeling a little fluish, honey. His father adds, We're all pretty cosy, Nick. His grandmother nods in woozy agreement. 
Okay, Nicholas says, heck with you all. I'll be back for dinner. Snow blows across the interstate while more is falling. But he's a Midwesterner and his father wouldn't be his father without putting virgin snow tires on the car. The American landscape show is spectacular. The Sheilas alone sent Nick into fits of jealous gratitude. He stays until the museum kicks him out. When he leaves, it's dark and the drifts swirl up above his boots. He finds his way back onto the interstate and creeps east. The road is whited out. All the drivers, foolish enough to attempt travel, cling to one another's tail light in slow procession through the white. The rut Nick ploughs has only the most abstract relation to the lane beneath. The shoulders rumbled strip is so muffled by snow he can't hear it. Under a viaduct he hits a sheet of frictionless ice. The car slaloms sideways. He surrenders to the freestyle slide, coaxing the car like a kite until it straightens. He flips his high beams on and off, trying to decide which is less blinding against the snowy curtain. After an hour he has gone almost twenty miles. A scene unfolds in the snow-black tunnel like a night-vision clip from a cop documentary. An, oncom an oncoming eighteen-wheeler jackknives into the median and swings around like a wounded animal, popping up on Nick's side a hundred yards in front of him. He swerves past the rack and slides off into the right shoulder. The right rear of the car bounces off the guardrail. His front left bumper kisses the truck's rear tyre. He skids to a stop and starts shaking so hard he can't steer. The car edges itself into a rest area crawling with stranded motorists. There is a payphone in front of the toilets. He calls a house, but the call won't go through. Night before Christmas and phone lines are down all over the state. He's sure his parents must be worried sick, but the only sane thing to do is curl up in the car and sleep for a couple of hours until everything blows over and the ploughs catch up with God's shit fit. He's back on the road a little before dawn. The snow has mostly stopped and cars creep by in both directions. He crawls home. The hardest part of the drive is climbing the little rise at the end of the interstate exit. He fishtails up the ramp and turns onto the road back to the farm. The way is drifted over. The whole chestnut appears from a long way off, piled up in white, the only spire all the way to the horizon. Two small lights shine from the house's upstairs windows. He can't imagine what anyone is doing up so early. Someone has waited up all light for word of him. The road to the house is piled high in snow. His grandfather's old truck plough is still in the shed. His father should have run it down and back at least a couple of times by now. Nick fights the drifts, but they are too much. He leaves the car halfway up the drive and walks the last stretch to the house. Pushing through the front door, he bursts out singing, Oh, the weather outside is frightful. But there's no one downstairs to laugh. Later he'll wonder whether he knew already there in the front doorway. 
But no, he must walk around to the foot of the stairs, where his father is lying, head downwards and arms bent at impossible angles, praising the floor. Nick shouts and drops to help his father, but there is nothing left to help. He stands and takes the stairs, two at a time. But by now everything is as clear as Christmas, everything anyone needs to know. Upstairs the two women curl up in their bedrooms and can't be wakened. A late morning sleep in on Christmas Eve. Blur rises up his legs and torso. He's drowning in pitch. He runs back downstairs where the old propane heater still cranks away, venting gas that rises and pools invisibly underneath the ceiling that Nick's father has so recently snugged up with extra insulation. Nick blunders through the front door, trips down the porch steps and falls into the snow. He rolls over in the freezing white, gasping and reviving. When he looks up, it's into the branches of the sentinel tree, lone, huge, fractal and bare against the drifts, lifting its lower limbs and shrugging its ample globe. All its profiglate twigs click in the breeze as if this moment, too, so insignificant, so transitory, will be written into its rings and prayed over by branches that wave their semaphores against the bluest of midwestern winter skies. <laughs>